Hello, welcome to another segment of Meet the Investor. My name is Ali Mwakaneno Gakweli, your usual host. So, um, recently I joined the AVCA conference. For those who are new here, the AVCA is the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association. And um, they were hosting various conversations with investors from all over the world on the various opportunities available to invest in the continent. And today we're honored to have the Chief Executive Officer, Abi Mustafa Maduwako, who is going to you know, shed some light into some of the issues that were discussed um, here on the podcast as well as on the conference. So we want to understand really the AVCA as an organization, what do they do for Africa? What are some of the initiatives that they have to build the funding gap um, in the continent? their experience operating in this market, as well as what we expect for the rest of the year. Also, if you get a chance, go look at the AVCA 2020 funding report. It's a comprehensive report on the nature of funding in the continent. And uh, welcome, Abby. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for having me. So, um, right on. Tell us a little bit about you know, the AVCA. What is the scope of the organization? Sure. So um, AFCA is, we are the Pan-African Industry Association with a primary focus on promoting private investment in Africa. So essentially we exist as a conduit for all stakeholders that are currently engaged in or interested in private investment in Africa. In terms of a bit of our history, we were founded in 2000 by FMO, the Dutch Development um, Finance Institution, and African Invest. And like I said, we, we were really uh, founded because there was a gap in the market at that point that was increasing private equity and maybe not so much VC, but at least private equity investment in Africa. And there became a widespread need to have a body that represented the collective interests of the key stakeholders in the industry. So, of course, we're member supported. We have just under 130 members. And we operate across four key verticals, the first being research. Uh, we track funds, fund managers, deals and exits on the continent and produce um, some bespoke reports, about nine annual reports, um, one of which you mentioned. Thank you very much, our annual data tracker. We also provide training. So we currently run three training programs targeted at supporting and building the capacity of various stakeholders in the private equity and venture capital space. We um, host networking events, essentially convening the industry to facilitate knowledge exchange and, and, and connection across the industry as a whole. And finally, our final vertical is advocacy. So we work with investment promotion agencies, with governments, uh, policymakers, regulators to really um, advocate for on behalf of our members and working with them to improve the environment so that private investment can thrive and grow on the continent. Abi, thank you so much for, for giving us some sort of an introduction into the organizations. Um, as you said earlier, you, AFCA was started in, in 2000 and it's turning 21 this year. Um, what are some of the milestones that the organization has achieved throughout its existence? 
firstly, we're celebrating our 20th uh, year this year because last year we weren't able to do so. So although we're 21, um, we are, this is our milestone year for us because we're able to adequately celebrate in the way we could have last year. So in terms of some of the key milestones, I mean, I'll touch on a few. The first is the flagship annual conference. So, you know, as you're likely aware, you joined our first virtual conference, but typically we put on the largest um, Pan-African PE conference um, on the continent and we move it to different cities across the continent, primarily just to showcase the ample investable opportunities in Africa. So the Africa conference, it's kind of the big event of the year, um, where the industry can connect, where we can exchange ideas and where we really focus on topical issues and solutions really um, across the PVC landscape. So, so that's the first thing that we built over the 20 years and has become quite successful. The second thing is research. So if you kind of look back 10 years, there was some really damning uh, commentary in the media about the dearth of research in Africa, I think in The Economist and Quartz Africa, about how you know policymakers are making decisions without data, there's no data to invest in Africa. So the lack of data was really crucial at that point. So if you can imagine, you know, pre-2011, you're a global investor, you're trying to invest in Africa, and you're going in blind, essentially, because there is no data, there's no granular data for you to just be able to make an informed decision on where to direct your capital. So that's the second gap in the market that we identified that we were able to plug by building a database that's really robust. We have over 150 fund managers in the database. And as I mentioned earlier, we track the fundraising, the deals and the exits. And from that data, we're able to manipulate our database to release not only the annual data tracker, but also some thematic reports on key sectors where we're seeing interest or where we're seeing growth or key themes affecting either deal-making or exits on the continent like currency and volatility and the like. So I think data has been really critical for the industry and that's an area that we're very proud of at AFCA. And then the third key impact that we've made over the past 20 years has really been on our capacity building and really developing our three core training products, which are uh, private capital masterclass targeted at fund managers and also private capital masterclass targeted at African institutional investors. And then the legal agreements training, which is targeted at legal professionals either in law firms or maybe legal professionals in fund um, in either GPs or sorry fund managers or institutional investors. And why this is important is because we feel that as part of our mandate, um, we really want to support the industry through each of the pain points in the fundraising, execution, and exit cycle. And so our capacity building programs are a really useful tool to not only equip and upskill the ecosystem, but also to support them along these pain points that I mentioned earlier. So that's the third thing that we've accomplished in the 20 years that we're very proud of. And finally, we've built a presence and a strong brand. We've built a large membership, which we're really grateful for, a diverse membership. We have... You know, as I mentioned, almost 130 members, over 40% of them are fund managers. So that's African-focused global fund managers that invest in, um, 
in um, Africa, and we have about 20% of them that are institutional investors, so those are the DFIs, the family offices, the foundations and the likes. We've got professional service firms, direct investors, financial institutions, so we've got a great diverse set of members that we serve, and it's been growing steadily over the past 20 years. You know, as a, as a head of an organization with a focus on in Africa specifically in promoting and enabling private investment in the continent. Why do you think investors from all over the world should look into the continent? I genuinely think that Africa is the most blessed continent, not least because, you know, I think now it's seven of the world's 10 fastest growing economies in 2022 are in Africa. So firstly, that says something about the elasticity of the continent and the ample opportunities there. Then if we continue to look at some of the macroeconomic factors, you know, we have a growing youth population, which is set to double by 2050. A lot of these youth are turning to entrepreneurship as there are fewer white collar jobs across the continent. This in itself presents an opportunity to invest in them, their businesses, their ideas and scale those. So that's, that's very interesting. That's a very compelling reason. Then we have the rising middle class um, on the continent as well and growing population. Essentially, these guys are becoming the consumers. So if you're coming to Africa, you're investing in consumer-led businesses, you can see that the consumers are increasing. So um, that's also positive. And then just looking at the fundamentals of the continent, you have the abundance of arable land, meaning food produce, agriculture. These things are really strong on the continent because you can grow anything practically um, on the continent. And all of these characteristics from a macroeconomic perspective, it just means that there are ample opportunities to invest in the right sectors of the continent where you can capitalize on these dynamics and have wide reaching impact. Now, if we look kind of further at just other, um, other reasons why you should come to Africa. So if you're a global investor and you're investing in other parts of the world, you're probably thinking about your asset allocation strategy, diversification. So Africa becomes interesting so that you can diversify where you put your capital and minimize your risk, obviously. If you're an investor that's interested in impact, Africa is very interesting because the impact of every dollar you invest on the continent goes a really long way. When I say impact, I mean impact on jobs, impact on poverty reduction, you know, impact on community enhancement, impact on bridging the wide infrastructure deficit on the continent. So that there is a lot of impact that can be gained investing in the continent. And when we did our industry survey a couple of months ago, um, some institutional investors identified impact as one of the core reasons why they continue to invest in Africa. So that's very important, and that's a big selling point. And then finally, I touched on opportunities a while ago, but coming to Africa, you're, you're coming at a point, and I don't like using the term Africa because I'm aware that there are 54 very unique countries that make up the continent, but for this purpose, I, I will generalize. But you're aware that coming onto the continent, you have governments that are more progressive, that are putting in place policies that focus on investor friendliness, that focus on industrialization, import substitution, and such policies present unique opportunities for investment. You also have the AFTA as well. At this point, the opportunity that the AFTA presents is 
an opportunity for African businesses to scale regionally. In that, in them scaling, this, you know, they're going to need capital to be able to scale their businesses to enter new markets and, and such things. So this is also a very interesting um, opportunity for global investors. Abby, as you're aware, there, there are quite a number of um, sort of funding gaps in Africa compared to other regions in the world, compared to Latin America. I, I'm avoiding comparing it to, you know, the United States because I feel like it's way far off. But then there are quite a number of gaps, especially in terms of in terms of data, in terms of information, which would allow startups or companies within the continent to easily match up with with investors. What are some of the initiatives that you have, rather that Africa has in place to just bridge that gap? Well, that's a good question, and I mean the first one I was saying. You touched on it yourself. You said data. And I touched on it earlier as well, why data is so important. This is why Africa's research is critical because it allows, like I said earlier, it allows not just the investors, like the institutional investors, but it also allows the fund managers as well, the insights and um, information to be able to make informed investment decisions. So we continue to provide data on the industry and we are extending this data a little bit more um, to make it more predictive so that we can predict things. Because like I said, we have a very deep database. So we're moving to the next phase of our evolution where we are going to be analyzing our historic data and trying to predict future trends. One of the things that we tell our members is to look at us as an extension of their internal research capabilities. So what does that mean in practice? If you're going and venturing into a new market um, and your fund manager, let's just use that example, you'll want to know who are the other fund managers in that country, shall we say. You know, what are the sectors that are thriving in that country? Where are we seeing the most investments in that country? You'll want to understand maybe examples of a couple of deals that you've seen in particular sectors that are aligned with your investment strategy. This is the kind of data that we provide our members, which is why I said we see ourselves as an extension of their internal research capabilities. So we offer this to our membership to guide their investment pathway, particularly into new investment jurisdictions. As well as that, um, our structure is such that we are fortunate to be supported by a whole host of advisory committees. And we have a legal and regulatory advisory committee. And part of what they put together are country guides, which are documents that um, explain the rule of law um, on how to invest in specific geographies or, you know, what the taxation policies are like there, what the corporate company registration is like there. All of these things help uh, when you're deciding to go to a new market. So again, bridging that information gap through those country guides, that's something that we do. So that's one issue, kind of giving the information of the lay of the land, giving the information on the investment landscape so that people can make informed decision. Then if I move on to the second bucket of issues is then, okay, I have this information, so how do you connect them to the opportunities? So what we do currently with our members is um, what we are going to start doing. So we're about to launch an ADCA platform, which is an enhanced digital platform that allows our members in the first instance to connect, to share ideas, to share opportunities that they have with each other. 
So whether there's opportunities for co-investments um, on certain transactions that will get increasingly important. So through our member platform, on the investment side, so on the deal sourcing side, our members will be able to share with each other opportunities that they're going into. So if they want to co-invest or if they want to exit, that's also very key. And then, you know, on the early stage side, which is where we're trying to build our capabilities, um, there are other organizations that provide this matching service between investor and entrepreneur, and we support them as well as part of our strategic partnerships. So those are the areas where we currently intervene, but by no means that doesn't cover everything. There's still more to do to be able to A, bridge the information gap, and B, I think, bridge the gap between institutional investor, connecting institutional investors to fund managers. And we do that by selling the continent a lot, uh, doing pitching sessions, introducing fund managers to institutional investors. And then on the other end of the scale, there's work, further work to be done between linking fund managers to investable opportunities on the continent. One of the things about Africa is it's still a very, very young ecosystem compared to you know, other ecosystems in the world. And of course, by the virtue of its age as an ecosystem, it has various, various unique challenges. What are some of those challenges that maybe members of AFCA have experienced and how is the association as an influential body um, in, the, in, the, in the world and in the investment space um, helping its members overcome these challenges? Ali, I'm really glad you actually framed the question by saying we are a young continent, a young ecosystem. Because typically you hear the rhetoric, though, it's really challenging doing business in Africa. And I don't disagree with that. But I also think it, for reasons that, you know, are, are obvious to us, the, the listless things that you can do so easily here, the things you don't have to contend with, like, you know, just having access to running water, having electricity, all of these things that make life a lot easier. Um, they're, they're not as accessible on the continent or in emerging markets in general. So, so I think uh, I like to steer away from oh, it's challenging doing business in Africa. I think it's challenging doing business in emerging markets. But as part of that challenge comes the reward, it comes the opportunity of doing business. So, so that's the first thing. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, it's challenging because the continent is made up of unique countries that are all nuanced, have their own uh, different jurisdictions, regulations, different challenges. So that in itself presents another challenge. But delving into kind of the specific challenges that some of our members have discussed, I mean, the first one you can't move away from is the currency volatility. And this is, um, you know, over the last year, the country that's been most significantly affected has been Nigeria. But over the last three to five years, we've had devaluation in you know, Kenya, shilling, as you're aware, you know, in the Egyptian pound also in the Naira, and from a private investment perspective, this can be problematic because what you find sometimes is, you know, from an investor's perspective, they need to be careful and invest. Some of the COVID mechanisms is they invest in businesses that are generating um, sales or revenue in foreign currency. Otherwise, you know, you can see the returns in the local currency is strong. When you translate those to hard currency, the returns aren't as strong. So currency volatility presents a difficult challenge and finding practical ways to resolve this 
Um, this is also challenging. So what we do as an association is we shed light on the issue. We do some case studies to find out how some members that have invested during a time of a lot of turbulence in um and volatility and currency, how they've been able to navigate it, what are the solutions that they've put in place, and just try and knowledge share. And then we look at what's been done in different geographies and different regions and try and get some of those lessons learned to share with our members. So that's what we do there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, some of the regulatory framework quite, you know, candidly, is quite challenging in specific countries on the continent. But at the other side of the coin is we're seeing a lot more governments committed to working hard to increase the ease of doing business on the continent and making it more attractive for private investors, whether that's through fiscal policies or other um, measures just to attract more FDI into the continent. And what are we doing as AFCA? We're continuing to work with governments, particularly with investment permission agencies, to support their work um, so that the environment can be more enabling for, especially these international investors to come into Africa. And if we delve a little bit deeper, kind of looking at the challenges in the VC and looking in the PE space, these challenges, again, they're nuanced. If we look at the early stage space, some of the challenges that our members have told us is, you know, just investing in these early stage businesses. Sometimes the issues around giving up equity, giving up some control, and that in itself can be problematic. So what we're trying to do at AVCA is also do some sensitization to some of these, not necessarily just early stage businesses actually, forgive me, SME um, businesses, to just get them ready to accept finance, uh, to accept equity, um, to get them to understand the asset class a little bit more, understand what it means to either get VC or PE funding, so that we reduce that expectation gap between the investor and the business that they're investing in. So that by all means doesn't tackle all of the challenges, but at least it gives you a flavor of some of the areas where we've positioned ourselves as an association to be able to help um, our members in the wider ecosystem combat some of these challenges. You know, before we really, really go to um, what response global investors have had from the various initiatives that you've you've talked about, including conversations with um, some of the countries that are sort of in a position to be more welcoming in terms of improving the ease of business, as well as sort of demystifying some of the myths about the continent, more on the business side of things, what do you think is missing from... Um, from African business, or what would you suggest businesses ought to do just to gain the attention of, of, of more investors or rather better position themselves to be investable, quote-unquote? Very good question, Ali. And I'll answer it to the best of my ability. I think they can do a number of things. Um, I would say, as a business, um, get your ducks in a row. So um, in terms of your just operations internally, there are things that you can do. So for good governance, you can separate your personal finances from your business finances. You can get your uh, back-end operations in place to make sure you have uh, an ERP or a financial reporting system, be able to track your expenses, you're able to report properly, just things that will give an investor comfort. 
um, that the business is being run properly, the finances are being managed properly, so that if they invest in you, you will use the capital in the right way. I think you can get your pitch deck to be compelling. Why should they put money in you? And you can clearly identify what you will use the money for. So if you're if you're fundraising for growth, it depends on the stage, right? So let's just if you're fundraising and the primary reason is that you want to grow your business, you need to be able to demonstrate how you will absorb that capital and how what that growth would look like, what your key markets will be um, that you're going to target, how the investor can help you achieve that. So that clarity and what you're going to use the finances for in your pitch needs to be really tight. Um, and I think having your, as I mentioned earlier, just having your internal operations that are state that shows good corporate governance, that gives the investor confidence that, you know, A, that finances will be safe, and that B, you'll be able to trust the reporting that you're doing. And finally, I think there needs to be some sort of flexibility. So equity finance is different to debt finance. It comes with some strings attached, which are also value-add for the business. So I think that curiosity, that openness to accept equity financing, not just from a finance perspective, but also the other value-add that you get from an equity investment partner. It could be, you know, the knowledge acquisition that you get. Um, some of the you know, introduce you to other businesses as part of their portfolio. So there could be some knowledge exchange there. There could be some strategic learning there. So I think just being open to that and coming into it, just knowing that it's not just finances you get, you're, you're also going on this journey with an equity partner. I think that mindset is also very important. What has been the, the response from, from global investors towards the different initiatives, especially those with regards to information, all, all the way from providing adequate data towards investing in Africa to providing education for the various um, stakeholders involved in investing? The response has been positive. So I think the response from global investors about PE and VC in Africa in general has been positive. So their response to the landscape, the deal activity, everything going on there has been great. And their response to AFCA as an organization and all of the interventions that we're doing has been great. And I'll talk about both. In terms of their response to just the general activity on the continent, um, we did an industry survey, I think I touched on it earlier, and it showed that almost 90% of the institutional investors that we surveyed wanted to maintain or increase their allocation to Africa over the next three years. So that's extremely positive. And if you think about the time frame we did the survey, we, we did the survey this year, but it was looking at 2020. And 2020, for all intents and purposes, was an abysmal year globally for everyone. So for us to get such positivity and intent from the Global Institutional Investor Committee off the back of such a negative year, I think that was very positive. I think um, institutional investors are very keen and bullish about specific regions on the continent and countries. So the report also showed that they're very interested in Kenya, they're very interested in Nigeria, they're very interested in Egypt. And, you know, North Africa in general is looking really interesting. And I think that's really great. What's interesting is on the VC side, we're seeing loads of global interests, not just from investors in the traditional sense, but from corporates as well. 
And then we're seeing some from kind of VC fund managers, global ones that are just dipping their toes in the water by doing an investment in African business. So I think the tide is turning for us on the continent. There's a lot of positivity, um, which is great. In terms of the response that they're giving to Africa for our interventions, it's been really good. So for us, what's really important is the sustainability of the industry. So as we know, the PEBC industry in Africa is still quite nascent. And you touched on how Africa, the ecosystem in general, is quite young. If we cascade that down to the PEBC, it's even younger. So it's quite a nascent industry. So what we are focused on is supporting the sustainability of this industry. And when I say that, the reason why I touch on that is because from an institutional investor perspective, a lot of the funding for private equity, and I'm talking about private equity specifically in Africa, comes from the DFIs. And they've been great at kind of sustaining the industry. But in the longer term, for the PE specifically industry to be sustainable, we need to attract commercial capital. And that's what we're heavily focused on as an association. And that's global commercial capital. So that's, you know, us talking to endowments and pension funds in the US and in sovereign wealth funds in Asia and really making the case for Africa, selling Africa to them. The same way I sold it to you, although I don't need to sell it to you, Ali, talking about the macroeconomic factors, talking about, you know, the impact story, really selling the need to invest in Africa. And then a little closer to home on the continent, we have all these untapped assets under management from pension funds on the continent um, that just haven't invested in in private equity. And so what we're doing here is, again, like I mentioned, our capacity building, we are doing training for some of the pension fund, either administrators or trustees, just to demystify the asset class, to go through kind of the risk considerations when doing due diligence on a fund manager, when allocating for that fund manager, what should you be looking out for in your LP quarterly reports? And all of those things is the first layer. And then the second layer is we're partnering with strategic organizations in each of our key geographies on the continent. And one of them that I can gladly announce is our strategic partnership with PENOP, which is the pension fund operators in Nigeria. It's the association for pension fund administrators in Nigeria. And as part of that uh, partnership, we have a target to unlock, to increase the percentage of allocation of pension fund assets to PE in Nigeria from 0. I think it's 0.03 to at least 3 or 4% um, over a specific time horizon. And we're doing this by, again, partnering on the training, um, doing more roundtable interventions, bringing, doing matchmaking with some, you know, top quartile fund managers, and also through a broader um, knowledge exchange initiative that we're doing across all African um, institutional investors, where we are trying to supplement our theoretical knowledge with our training with some more practical skills by pairing the African institutional investor with other global institutional investors with deeper expertise investing in Africa. And what does that mean? It means for a given period, they will be working side by side with these global institutional investors to really um, have some practical hands-on experience of what it's like to actually go through the process of allocating to PE. 
So I've gone off a bit, but as you can tell, I'm really passionate about this, um, Ali. And um, these are the sort of things that we're doing to really unearth and unlock, actually, some of the assets under management on the continent. Very, very, very nice initiative, Ali. And I'd love to delve into into a deeper conversation, maybe later in time, with regards to um, the specifics of the of the partnerships we have, specifically matching institutional investors in the continent with those in the world. But right now, let's let's move to the 2020 um, Africa funding report. And I was going through it earlier, and there are quite quite some interesting insights. And the first one that I'd like to maybe look at is. It's the trend in um, private equity funds for the past five years. Looking at data from 2015 to 2020, we saw that the total value of African private equity fundraising in 2020 was the lowest at 1.2 and um, sort of the highest at 4.5 billion US dollars in 2015. But then we also had a trough in 2017. Abi, you're the expert here. Could you help us demystify this? Absolutely. So, I mean, you're spot on. You've said everything that I could say, but on average, fundraising has been $3 billion annually over the past five years. But you do have some peaks and troughs. So 2015, like you said, there was a peak. That's because we had some of the big fund managers out in the market that closed at the time. I think DPI closed their fund too. We had Helios and we had the Ben Abraj close. Um, but then when we got to 2020, and I think it's it's, it's not surprising, fundraising dropped to 1.2 billion because it's very difficult to fundraise when you can't travel, you can't meet GPs face to face. So if you're a fund manager that's already in the market, that's already, um, you know, maybe you're raising your fund two or three, you've already built these relationships with the LPs. At that point, yes, you could potentially raise and, you know, complete due diligence virtually because you already have those relationships. But if you're building new relationships, it's very difficult to build this virtually. And these were some of the themes that came out of our conference um, last month, actually. So I think it's unsurprising that fundraising dropped to 1.2 billion, given what happened with COVID. It was just really tough to fundraise in that in that climate, because you know a lot of countries went into lockdown in March. For the first two or three months, people were still figuring out how to change their business processes to adapt to this new world. Um, but what we did see in 2020 was a lot of interim closes, um, which um, which happened in 2020, which is great. Just to illuminate further, our data tracker only shows final closes. So we don't show any first close or interim close as part of the overall 1.2 numbers. So what I'm hoping to see is for 2021 fundraising increase because we've already started seeing the start of this year some closes, some further interim closes and also a couple of final closes as well. well let's let's take a look at the distribution of, um, of funding and thank you for clarifying um, that it's, it's final closes. As this has been the trend in past years, the finance sector still um, dominates in terms of the number and value of deals. And we see that other sectors like the energy sectors are still are still trailing, especially when you look at the value of private equity deals in, in 2020. Um, my question would be, of course, apart from um, the mobile penetration in, in, in the continent and uh, the rise of mobile money transfer, powerhouses, especially in East Africa, I have to say that. 
What do you think fintech in general continues to dominate up funding in the continent? To be honest, it's incredible. I mean, you've talked about how in the report, you know, financial services is one of the largest sectors um, by volume. That has been the case. Um, financial services, consumer staples and discretions over the past few years. But what was different this year is the financial deals, um, over, almost 70% of them were fintech deals. So I think COVID also accelerated this because I think there were a couple of, and I keep using these two examples because they were the largest um, deals we saw, you know, last year, the 200 million strike acquisition of Paystack. We also saw this year, the massive series C round funding for Flutterwave. I think access to financial services is something that's key on the continent. A lot of governments are working to increase the unbanked population and a lot of organizations are taking advantage of some of these uh, government drives, some of these policies and creating tools that um, best service. So I, I think that's key. I also think payments is just really big. And, and we saw it starting, like you rightly said, in, in East Africa with M-Pesa and, you know, BitPesa also. And I think this is going to continue. So I think payments is a, is a big space there as well. And remittances, I think that's also a very big space. And I think a lot more um, entrepreneurs are doing stuff around, like I said, financial inclusion and bringing the unbanked, being able to tap into that massive um, population of those that are underserved by financial services and building tools that are fit for purpose so that you can bring some of that population into the formalized, and I use air quotation, uh, financial industry. And I think because we have that massive contingent of the unbanked, there'll forever be opportunity there for more innovations in the fintech space and you know, more investments in those innovations. And then finally, um, we have traditional banking services across the continent that can be digitized. I mean, we now have a couple of digital banks. I, I remember the first one in Nigeria a few years ago when Lydia Bank came up. I think they were the first ones, and forgive me if I'm wrong about Lydia, but they're the first ones I remember that came out with a digital banking strategy. And this was years ago, I was thinking, but that'll never work. How would that work? And at that point, I was thinking, God, that's that's a very difficult business model. But, you know, it's very possible now that lots more organizations have proven that. So I think part of it is COVID-related that has changed how we do business. So now a lot of technology, we're seeing a lot of um, kind of financial service products that are enabled by technology, and we're going to continue seeing that. And then there's also this whole... Uh, population of unbanked, underserved um, population in, across Africa and creating products to bring them into the formalized banking economy. And there's a lot of opportunity there. So I think this trend that we're seeing where a lot of deals um, are within the financials um, sector and those deals are highly, the fintech transactions are highly concentrated, I think we're going to continue seeing that. On the other side of the divide is uh, funding towards the energy sector, uh, you know, um, clean tech. We still, um, we're still seeing that. I'm, I'm happy, by the way, health funding in healthcare is increasing, but then the energy sector 
is and has been trading trading for a while. And I think part of it is also because as compared to um, other sectors like consumer goods and fintech, we do not have as many players in things like off-grid power systems as we have in, in finance. Why do you think that's the case? For a couple of reasons. I mean, energy investments, they're specialized, so they require um, a lot of uh, specialized experience. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is if we look at um, that they're capital intensive as well. So you're not going to see a fund manager that has $100 million doing an energy investment that could, you know, be required them to invest about $20 million. So I think they're capital intensive, so that excludes a a large contingent of fund managers that can play there. It requires a lot of sector specialization. So again, that also includes fund managers that can play there as well. And sometimes going into these sectors, um, there are a lot of regulatory barriers that can be off-putting when you're going in and potentially doing some off-grid kind of um, investments or some projects there, that can also be off-putting. And these are just, again, I'm speaking anecdotally, these are some of the things that we've heard and from our experience as well, are some of the barriers to investing in the energy sector. Having said that though, we've seen a lot of um, fund managers doing more climate-friendly investments and being more focused on climate-friendly investments. I mean, Metier, for instance, their Metier Fund 2 is completely focused on renewable energy investments. We also saw a couple of investments, I think, last year in the Spark Meter, which is um, an off-grid solution as well. So we're seeing more and more of these investments because fund managers are getting more uh, climate-friendly conscious as well. And I'm thinking that we'll see more of those in the future. Let's let's talk about COVID-19. And I'm actually happy with the progress that we're making globally towards combating the pandemic, including, you know, the vaccine. Um, but before, before we discuss how best to move forward, how do you think COVID-19 has changed um, how investors approach, approach the different sectors in the continent? It's an interesting one because I think the answer to that, we almost have to wait um, and see this year through to be able to fully answer that. Having said that, what we're seeing is um, so far is that investors are looking at sectors that have A, either been unaffected by COVID or have thrived because of COVID. And again, I'll go back to the food and agriculture sector. You know, this is one of the sectors that, you know, throughout COVID, everybody still has to eat. So those sectors actually did quite well. And investors that invested in these sectors, in agriculture, agribusiness, you know, have said that their portfolios remain relatively unscathed and actually did quite well. I think COVID has made a lot of investors very eager to invest in technology-enabled sectors. So that is agri-tech, edutech, fintech, health tech. And then the final thing is, I think a lot more investors, as you mentioned earlier, are looking at healthcare, investing along the healthcare value chain. So whether that's in, you know, pharmaceutical, in hospital, in healthcare service delivery, I think what COVID-19 did was it brought healthcare investments. It shed more of a light on the healthcare systems across the continent 
and the gaps in some of these, you know, quite candidly in some of the healthcare systems across the continent, but also the opportunities. And I think there's a lot more innovation happening with entrepreneurs in the healthcare space and the value chain. And I think investors, so when I say investors, I mean fund managers or institutional investors, they're going to, I think what COVID has done is that they're able to look positively at some of these opportunities and capitalize on them. I mean, looking at investment in Africa, we have to talk about the inequalities that we have. Apart from, of course, the inequalities in sectors that we already discussed, we have to discuss the inequalities in terms of the distribution of funding in terms of regions. You know, with uh, for most investors that I have actually spoken to, you know, Africa simply boils down to Nigeria, Egypt, Kenya, South Africa, a little bit of Tunisia and Morocco, a little bit of Ghana, and then we have a whole um, swath of land that is Central Africa that's almost forgotten. You know, um, when you compare funding in Francophone Africa and Anglophone Africa, it's almost incomparable. And this inequality actually reflects itself in the Africa report. We see that the share of deals, for example, between 2015 and 2020 in Central Africa is 2% compared to um, 16 in the larger Eastern Africa and uh, 18 in South Africa alone. And the same, the same, same, same trend also replicates itself when you look at the value of private equity deals in the five years where Central Africa is at 2%, which is at its very, very lowest compared to, you know, 17% in North Africa, 10% in um, East Africa, 21% in West Africa. What do you think it will take just to stimulate investments in uh, Francophone Africa? Great question, Annie. Um, so when we talk about Francophone Africa, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The Central Africa, the, the share of the deals, it's, you know, it, it's very low. I think part of the reason is we don't have a lot of um, investors that understand that landscape or that actively play in that landscape. Um, we had some... Uh, fund managers that were solely dedicated to investing in Central Africa, but I think there was just one um, in, in in the past few years. I could be wrong, but I, but I can only think of one. So I think there are not enough investors that understand the lay of the land there. So I think um, maybe as an association, just um, kind of bridging, as we mentioned earlier, bridging that information gap, um, explaining a little bit more about the lay of the land, showcasing some of those investable um, opportunities. That could be interesting. But I do think in other parts of Francophone Africa, so Francophone West Africa, which is why I wanted to, when you said Francophone, I think Central Africa, yes. I think, you know, the, the lack of understanding of the geography and maybe the fact that um, the deals aren't as... Um, the opportunities aren't as wide, maybe it's just smaller deals there. That could be one of the reasons. But I think looking at West Africa, Francophone Africa, a lot of activity we see in Cote d'Ivoire and also in Senegal, which was part of the reason why we were actually going to do the 2020 Africa conference in Dakar. So I think Francophone West Africa, that there is activity there, primarily because you have funds that are focused on kind of West Africa funds, and they do do some investments there outside of, you know, the Nigeria and the Ghana. Those funds, they do dip their toes in the water in Africa. So it's a difficult question to answer what can we do to kind of redirect capital to Central Africa. 
you know, it doesn't help uh, with the kind of instability in the region over the past few years. But it was the same with North Africa, right, um, around the Arab Spring. And then we saw an uptick in activity in North Africa from 2014. But before then, because of the Arab, Arab Spring and then the political uncertainty in the region, we didn't really see that much investment there. So that could potentially be a reason why we don't see much investment in the Central African region as well. But um, as an association, we will continue to advocate for all uh, parts of Africa and maybe shed light on how to do business in these regions and the type of investable opportunities that they have within Central Africa. I do think my final point is I do think that the investment promotion agencies have a big role to play here to really selling um, their countries globally uh, with roadshows and also just showcasing investment opportunities. I remember when we went to Nairobi, the Kenyan Investment Promotion Agency wanted to partner with us at that point because they had a portal. I don't know if that's still the case. They had a portal where they were showing all the different investable opportunities that they wanted FDI for. So things like this, I'm not saying they don't do it in the Central African countries at the moment, but this is where the investment promotion agencies are also very key. Abi, um, a little bit maybe on the, on the ticket sizes, um... You know, Africa compared to other regions in the world has, I think, fairly fairly smaller ticket sizes, especially in in early rounds. How do you think this sort of affects um, startups that are looking to grow fast before they before they break even? And what do you think it will take just to increase the ticket sizes in the continent? Yeah, so I think if we um Look at startup investments in general, um, they are associated with a fair amount of risk, just given the nature of startups. So that's one thing. And then when investing in Africa in general, there's another layer of risk that's associated with investing in Africa. And we talked about this earlier, so it's either the political risk, the currency volatility risk that arises as well. So a combination of both risks uh, makes an investor, potential investor, a little bit more cautious when they're going in. And they wouldn't want to give, um, you know, invest in large amounts. They will go in dipping their toes in the water. In terms of what could be done, you know, to mitigate against the political risk, there could be political risk insurance, maybe for some potential investors, which could allow them invest in um, larger ticket sizes. Again, that's just a possibility. And again, political risk insurance, it's not that common in Africa. We did a study, I think in 2017, that showed it's not that common, but that's a possibility. Another reason why we see larger ticket sizes in early stage deals in other jurisdictions is just the ability for those um, companies to scale. So this is where the AFTA becomes really important. The fact that it provides the opportunity for scale across the continent that makes it more interesting for an investor. So if you are, and I talked about this earlier when I was saying about you know having your pitch, what you want to use the capital for, how you can absorb the capital. So if your pitch is that you want to scale regionally, now that's possible. The barriers and impediments to that scaling process have been removed slightly by the after. So then, you know, if you're a business, an SME or an early stage business, and that's part of your growth trajectory or your growth plan, that's more interesting and appealing for an investor. So I think that could potentially help with raising larger ticket sizes. But in all fairness, I think, you know, 
the, like we mentioned earlier, the PVC space in Africa is still quite nascent. So I think, you know, although it's shown a lot of growth over the past 10 to 20 years, we're still at a relatively, you know, early stage of the infancy as opposed to more global uh, developed PE markets. So I guess what that means is while early stage ticket sizes are like, you know, quite low, there is room that as the industry matures, this will naturally result in larger ticket sizes being the norm. Uh, for entrepreneurs, so, so, so that's the hope. Yeah, I think that's it, Annie. Last question, yeah. Um, again, 2021, uh, of course, is, is different from 2020 in the sense of um, we've seen more countries ease restrictions in travel. Uh, we have, of course, developments um, with the vaccine, which have led to immense, immense relaxation of the different measures meant to cut the spread of COVID-19. Um, what are some of the things we can look forward to this year compared to last year? And um, maybe if you could touch on, on something, I think Angela Miller from the Chicago Teachers Pensions Foundation in terms of uh, how investors interact with startups, especially up in, in 2021. What are some of the things that we can look forward to? Hopefully the first one, I hope mobility. Um, that's the first thing I hope we can look forward to. So I think what we've been hearing and what we've been seeing in our preliminary data collection uh, for 2021 is improved an uptick in activity. So we've seen a lot more investments in the first five months of this year, which is great. So we're seeing capital being deployed. And I think that's absolutely great for entrepreneurs. That's great for portfolio companies because investors do have dry powder and they're looking to allocate it. Um, they're looking to do deals. So I think that's really good. You mentioned the vaccine, you know, the vaccine rollout across the continent in some jurisdictions, it has been slow. So I think as we come out of these um, periods of lockdown, we still need to be careful in terms of how we do things on the continent so that we don't have resurgence of the pandemic and so that we don't have a third wave, but, but, but that's by the by. In terms of what we should be looking forward to is I think there's going to be, like, if, if I just talk about it from a sectoral perspective, I think investors are going to be, we mentioned this already, looking to invest in the healthcare space and technology-focused investments. So I think any entrepreneurs that are um, kind of operating across any of those sectors and verticals, I think that's very interesting for them. Um, I think... Kind of the way we do things will have changed. So I think in general, across the continent, what we can look forward to is a lot more efficiency. I think from a fund manager perspective to, to an entrepreneur portfolio company, I don't know if this digital due diligence is something that's going to continue in the future or maybe a hybrid of both. But that's also interesting, kind of just how we work uh, how fund managers interact with their portfolio companies and also their prospective investments that they want to make. Um, that's also going to be interesting, but I think technology is still going to be a huge part of how we do things going forward. Yeah, and I think we can continue looking forward to, you know, a lot of VC activity in general. So I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but... You know, we had, in terms of the value of deals that we had in 2020, it was lower than the year before, but the volume of deals was more. And that's because of, we had a massive amount, almost 50% of the deals were early stage deals. 
So there's a lot of interest in the VC space and early stage space. And I think we can look forward to a lot more there and a lot more innovation coming from the continent. Thank you so much for sharing that, Abby. And uh, we definitely look forward to having more conversations uh, with you. Africa in general, there, there are quite, quite um, a number of gaps in information which we feel like we could really, really collaborate just to uh, sort of bring more information in terms of the legal aspect of investing, sustainable investing with a specific focus in matters, gender-sensitive investing and many more topics. But I'd like to put a pen on it here. Abi, thank you for creating time to join today's discussion. And I look forward to talking to you further in future. Likewise, Ali. Thank you for this truly engaging conversation. Um, I look forward to speaking to you as well in the future.